Hello and welcome to episode 19 of Interabing Podcast, produced by Interabing Books in Dallas, Texas. On this week's episode, we have an interview with Christina Alger, author of the new financial thriller, The Banker's Wife. You know, I think a lot of people think financial thriller is an oxymoron, and I'm trying to show people that it's not. Finance is really exciting, and I think even if it's not sort of something that you're naturally interested in, it's good fertile ground for thrillers. You'll also hear about the exciting events we'll have in the store in the coming weeks. Remember, you can support the store 24-7 by shopping on our website, interrobangbooks.com. There, you'll also find new releases, articles, and book recommendations. Author Christina Alger started her career as an attorney and financial analyst in New York City. She published her first novel, The Darlings, in 2012, followed by her sophomore release, This Was Not the Plan, in 2016. The New York Times described her new novel, The Banker's Wife, as slick, heart-hammering entertainment. Here's my conversation with Christina Alger, recorded earlier this month. Christina Alger, thank you so much for joining us on Interrobing Podcast. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. So to start us off, can you give us the premise of your new book, The Maker's Wife? Sure. So without giving away too much, in the first couple pages, a private plane carrying a private banker from a Swiss bank crashes in the Alps and Annabelle Warner, who's the young widow of the private banker who was aboard the plane, goes looking for answers um, as to what happened to her husband. And at the same time, Marina Turno, who's a journalist, is investigating one last story before she leaves journalism. And it happens to be into Swiss United, the bank that Matthew worked for. So those are the two female protagonists in the book. And it goes from there. So like all good thrillers, The Banker's Wife places its protagonists in pretty difficult situations that reveal the quality of their characters. So without giving too much away, what do we know about Annabelle as a character and what are some of the trials that she undergoes over the course of this novel? So Annabelle is an American expat who's moved to Geneva for her husband's job. Her husband's taken this job as a private banker at a Swiss bank. And she's a little bit adrift in Geneva. I mean, she's given up her job. She doesn't have any friends or family in Geneva. And so she's really been defined by being, you know, a banker's wife. She's she's Matthew Warner's wife. And so when he dies, I think she really has to figure out, sort of remember who she was and remember that she's intelligent and strong and capable. And she's, you know, totally in this terrible sort of very stressful situation, but she can get herself out of it. I think, you know, that that's part of how I came up with the title is the banker's wife is both these women are in some ways struggling with their identity as people that are married to very successful men and, you know, where that leaves them. So while Annabelle faces this quite difficult, unimaginably difficult circumstance. So too is the case with Marina, the other protagonist in the story, who has made a name for herself as a journalist crusader against financial interests, but then also is in love with and is engaged to a guy named Gray Ellis, who's a member of a rather well-known financial interest family. 
So what are some of the struggles that Marina faces and how does she how does she come to terms with the decisions she has to make? She's one of my favorite characters. You know, she was in my first book and I brought her back because I loved her so much. But she, you know, she comes across this is sort of the story of her career. And she knows that if she publishes it, it will make her career and sort of catapult her into a new stratosphere. But it also has severe personal implications and will affect the people that she loves. And so the question is, does she publish it or not? Does she choose her, you know, journalistic integrity and the pursuit of truth and her career? Does she put that ahead of her private life? And the people she loves. So both Annabelle and Marina face some traditionalist expectations about how women should act in any given situation. So Annabelle is facing expectations about how she should react with the death of her husband. Marina is facing really a great trial of the question of loyalty to her family and to her her future husband versus the duty she feels as a journalist and the duty she feels to herself and her career. So how do these two women cope with these expectations and in many ways usurp these expectations over the course of the book without giving too much away? Well, that's, you know, that's sort of at the crux of the book. And I think it's, I think women everywhere relate to it. I mean, it's sort of that question of how, how much of yourself do you give up to be in a relationship? And, you know, how do you balance kind of who you are as a person before you get married and what happens after you get married? So both these women are kind of struggling with defining themselves as independent women while also simultaneously being loyal wives or in Marina's case, a fiance. So it's one of the interesting things that kind of binds them together, even though these two women don't know each other, they live on different continents, but they're both sort of going through the same internal struggle. So something that you've discussed in other interviews is how to handle the financial aspect of a financial thriller. And in this case, I think your background really comes into play. Your your background is really quite well suited for writing in an accessible manner about finance and about financial law in as far as it pertains to uh, you know the plot of the thriller. So can you tell us a little bit about your background and how that plays into your writing process? So I worked in finance for about 10 years. Um, I went to law school and so I worked as a financial analyst and I also worked as a corporate lawyer. So I, it's funny, I, I was in conversation with Alifair Burke, who's one of my favorite novelists last week. And she's a, she's a lawyer and she was saying, you know, I have to really watch myself because I get so into this sort of nitty gritty of like how to get a search warrant. And I have to remind myself that not everyone cares so much about these details. Um, so you really have to edit yourself. And similarly with finance, I know even just like the, the word bank, you know, people glaze over. And so I'm really vigilant about trying to give readers enough information so that they can follow the story without sort of getting bogged down in the details. And, you know, I think a lot of people think financial thriller is an oxymoron. And I'm trying to show people that it's not. Finance is really exciting. And I think um, even if it's not sort of something that you're naturally interested in, it's good fertile ground for thrillers. Something else that this book does that I think is really quite excellent is is the creation of Geneva as the setting and as the backdrop for the majority of the narrative. So for those of us who really don't like rub shoulders with the super wealthy and don't really have a good sense of, of Geneva as a place, can you explain why Geneva is such a good uh, setting for a financial thriller? What are the like what what are like some of the qualities of Geneva and Swiss banking that make it so attractive for those who wish to hide or transfer illicit funds around the world? 
Yeah, for sure. So it's, you know, Switzerland's fascinating. I mean, they, they have a very different banking system there. And so it's, it's changing. Um, there was a case a couple of years ago, a guy named Bradley Birkenfeld, who was a private banker at UBS, who actually was a whistleblower and came forward, gave the DOJ, the Department of Justice and the IRS, um, sort of his Rolodex of people that were doing business with him at UBS. And he ended up going to jail um, for his part in aiding, abetting tax evaders. And then he walked out of jail and the IRS gave him the largest whistleblower award ever, which was $114 million. So it's a totally wild story. And he did a great 60 minutes interview. And anyway, if anyone's interested in Swiss banking, it's it's a story worth looking up. But, you know, Switzerland has banking system that's very closed. They don't really require people to give as much information about themselves in setting up banks. And so it's become a haven where people can come and sort of store their money without having to attach their name to the account. And so that's sort of the term offshore banking often refers to Swiss banks. And so that's why I chose to set this in Geneva. But yes, there's a lot of hidden money, a lot of money in numbered accounts over there. At the heart of the banker's wife is this great conspiracy. It's a crime wrapped up in a crime wrapped up in a crime. And I'm wondering about how the legality of a lot of what plays out in the novel, how the legality works. You know, how, do, how if an American commits a financial crime in Switzerland, does American law apply to that? If it has to do with like American funds, does Swiss law apply to that? So how does legality work when it comes to Swiss banking and finance in general? Um, and how does how do questions of legality play out over the course of the book? The banker's wife. Yeah, so that's a really interesting question. I mean, it, you know, if the money coming into a Swiss bank is ill-gotten, meaning you know it's drug money or money from arms dealing or something like that, the banks have a moral and legal obligation not to take it. So yes, that violates Swiss law. But if an American citizen is choosing to evade taxes by hiding money in a Swiss bank, they are not violating Swiss law. So the Swiss don't don't care. <laughs> So um, it's interesting, you know, Bradley Bergenfeld, to go back to that case, he always said, you know, what I'm doing in Switzerland is not illegal here. It is illegal in the U.S. because these people are not paying taxes on this money. But with we are operating within Swiss law. So that's what makes it sort of fascinating is that there's this whole economy that really isn't violating Swiss law. And um, they just have a different set of rules there. But yes, at the heart of my book are a lot of crimes that are kind of universally considered illegal. So those crimes, you know, these are arms dealers and world leaders who are doing very corrupt things. Those are illegal everywhere. To take a step back and look at how you wrote the book, the story is broken up into two narratives. It's Annabelle's perspective and Marina's perspective. And I think it works pretty well when it comes to the thriller aspect of the book, because we get the revelations of both kind of bouncing off one another. And while these two characters might not be aware of what the other one knows, the reader becomes aware and that advances the plot really well. So I'm wondering how much did you plot this book? And then how did you how did you arrange for the perspectives of these two characters to reveal information? And to what extent did you plan out how you reveal information between the two characters? It was a challenge. I knew I wanted to write this story and I actually wasn't sure who I wanted the protagonist to be. So I started writing the two stories on parallel tracks because I had this idea, oh, a journalist would be the perfect protagonist for the story. And then I thought, no, I really want it to be a personal story and someone who's really close to it. And 
So anyway, I started writing these two stories and I kind of ended up braiding them together into one narrative. And as you said, I think it actually really ups the tension to have, you know, you're following, you know, bouncing back before between two storylines. But because of that, I had to plot it out really carefully because it's a challenge. You want to make sure that you're not, you know, discovering something in one chapter and then taking a step back in the next. So it really has to be pretty carefully plotted out. So I I plotted it before I went any further and decided exactly where the stories were going to intersect. Yeah. Yeah. So with that in mind, what was the process of revision like? What did what is it like to revise a thriller as opposed to a different kind of book? And what are some of the things that you have to keep in mind when you're revising a thriller? It's really tough to revise a thriller because if you change details, then you kind of have to go back and change all the mechanics that lead up to those details. So it's it's actually, I found it really stressful because I said, you know, if we change this one thing, we're going to have to go back and change everything. I had plotted this out so carefully that we didn't actually end up changing that much during the revision period. We were just mostly sort of tightening up the language and kind of making it move faster. And if there was any kind of dead wood, I cut it out because I think thrillers, you sort of need to keep the pace 60 miles an hour all the time. So with that question of like pacing in mind, I'm wondering how you arrived at the style of the story. You know, even looking at the page, it's clear that you know, the dialogue is quite clipped, kind of like a pulp or a noir story. And even the description is is really quite economical. So how did you arrive at that style? And to what extent was it intentional? You know, it's funny, I think some of it is being a lawyer. So when I started at law school, I took a legal writing class and I was an English major and I thought I was a good writer. So when I got my first paperback, I had got a C or something and I was horrified. (laughs) And I went to see the professor and he's like, were you an English major? You have way too many words in this. You've got to really clean this up. And so I, you know, I, legal writing is an amazing discipline because it really teaches you how to use words effectively. And each word has to be really carefully thought out in legal writing. And I, I end up really appreciating that in fiction. Um, you know, I, I personally gravitate to really sparse prose, prose that really gets at the heart of things quickly. So that's sort of how I aspire to write myself. And I think it fits with the thriller format because there's readers aren't cutting through a lot of extraneous words to get to where they're going. They're just kind of not slowed down by the by the words themselves. As a final question, something that I'm always interested about when it comes to mysteries and thrillers, but also in in fiction in general, prose in general, is the interiority of characters. So to what extent does the prose enter into, you know, the mind and heart of a character? And how do authors make those types of decisions? And something that's that's really clear about The Banker's Wife is just how, how uniquely exterior it is, how, how wonderfully exterior and grounded in the real world it is. So how did you make decisions as far as it as far as interiority goes? I tend to personally as a reader, I like having things sort of, you know, shown, not told to me. And so I think especially in a thriller where there's a lot of action and there's a, there's a lot of stuff happening, you can kind of get at the heart of a character without sort of hearing their inner monologue. Um, I think it sort of slows you down. And I think the best writers, like if you look at, you read John Grisham's The Firm, for example, you know in five minutes who his main character is, you know, and you don't have to be told what he's thinking. You just know who he is and you sort of get him right away. And I think that's what I as a thriller writer aspired to do is not get sort of bogged down in the sort of interior thoughts, but have a the 
reader feel like they know this person well enough to know what kind of decisions they'd be making or how they're feeling in a certain circumstance. Christine Alger, thank you so much for spending some time with us today on Interrobing Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. You can find copies of The Banker's Wife here in the store or online at interrobangbooks.com. Next, here are some of the great events happening in the store in the coming weeks. This Saturday, August 4th at 1 o'clock, we'll wrap up our summer 2018 Where's Waldo search with the special Where's Waldo party here in the store. Families of all ages are invited. The following Friday, August 10th at 7 p.m., young adult author Mary Pearson will visit the store with her new fantasy novel, Dance of Thieves. Then on Sunday, August 12th at 2 p.m., writer Brie Barton will be here to discuss her fierce feminist teen novel, Heart of Thorns. We hope you can join us. You can find out about these and all of our other events on our website, interrobangbooks.com. And don't forget to vote for your favorite novel in The Great American Read, presented by KERA. Find more information by visiting pbs.org slash greatamericanread. That's it for the 19th episode of Interrobang Podcast. There's always something new at Interrobang, so follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter to keep up with the store. The podcast is produced by Interrobang Books in Dallas, Texas. Our music was composed by Carlos Guajardo. I'm Jack Freeman. We hope to see you in the store soon. Have a great week and read fearlessly. Fearlessly.